man, white people got to be as disgusted by this as black people are. Otherwise, the problem worsens. This is The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, the oldest man to ever start a podcast, Greg Cody. Welcome, everybody, to The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody and usually Chris Cody, episode 14. You all know by now that we try to laugh and smile around here as a sort of as a default purpose of the podcast and get serious only when needed. Heck, even when we're serious, we try to fit in smiles. Today, amid a deadly pandemic, a a cratering economy because of it, and now inflamed racial tension over the police killing of George Floyd, we are still going to try to sneak in some fun where we can here. We're going to bring on zoo maestro Ron McGill. He joins us today as we put on the gloves and continue our duck war. And we're going to have a meaty conversation with Miami legend Luther Campbell, Uncle Luke, about the Floyd killing and how it hit him. Because he, he's one of the faces and leaders of the black community in the 305. But of course, at the end of that conversation, we also speak to Uncle Luke about his passion for Miami Hurricanes football. And, and Canes fans will absolutely want to hear what he has to say about Manny Diaz. Will there be a recap of Greg Cody hosting the Miami Herald High School Awards in this episode? <laughs> because I saw it, and I think it should, they should have uh, retitled it Greg Cody Reading. Yeah, it, uh, anybody who wants to hear what we're talking about, you can, you can still go to the Miami Herald uh, Facebook and YouTube channels and, and search it out. It's the Miami Herald Athletic Awards, virtual uh, high school awards. I've never watched an awards show where the host of, the sh- of said show is the 13th person to speak at um, the start of the ceremony. I, I will say, in all candor, that uh, I was not quite as prominent uh, as I imagined I would be. Can I say that? And, uh, you know, I look, you got me started here. I don't mind that I was supplanted by a few local pro athletes in terms of handing out the major awards. You know, if, if I'm a, a, a high school football player, I would rather uh, hear a Miami Dolphin announce my name, even if it's the third string tight end, than me. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing that did sort of make me both smile and SMH was when uh, one of the major awards was present, not presented by me, but who replaced me? The Florida Panthers radio play-by-play guy, who, quite frankly, no offense to him, I had never heard of him, I, and I suspect none of the high school athletes had either, but that's okay. Uh, you know, it's all about the kids. All in all, it was a cool thing, though, because being in high school, I remember my high school awards show, and when I was nominated for All-County and stuff like that, so like that is cool for the kids that got to be part of it. No, and, I, and I'm proud that the Miami Herald continued that tradition because we've been doing these annual things for high school athletes since 1957. This was like whatever, the 60-whatever annual. And, and we didn't let a pandemic uh, stop us, and, and I'm proud of uh, who I work for because of that. On the sports and, and coronavirus front, this is a huge week for MLB as, as baseball and players haggle over the details of, of a no-fans restart, haggle over money primarily. Uh, and, and this, man, this begs a quick compromise because this is the worst time possible in a pandemic amid record unemployment with cops in riot gear for, for Mike Trout 
to be seen as complaint or perceived as complaining because he might have to take a pay cut to only $70,000 per game. So come on, baseball, strike a deal and, uh, and get back to playing. Sports, um, serious sports discussion. Sports is happening. Sports <laughs> well, discussions. Yeah, but it's more than sports. Sports in the context of the coronavirus is uh, something totally new. It's, it's bizarre. Every week it's bizarre. And I want to bring, uh, give you one last example before we move on to the meat of the show. I wrote a column that I titled Outrage in Alamance County about a racetrack, auto racetrack in Elon, North Carolina, reopening uh, and welcoming in full crowds, 4,000 race fans, hardly any of them in protective face masks, no social distancing whatsoever. It was egregious of the racetrack owner to open under those circumstances. And the only reason he could do it was that the small town sheriff, county sheriff, flouted the state laws against large crowds to do this in, in complete violation of the pandemic mandates. And I found this hugely offensive and dangerous. And it actually galled me to see the image of those race fans acting as if there were not any threat of a coronavirus whatsoever. It was, you know, as, as when, when we talk about outrageous sights and what we're all dealing with with the coronavirus, what I saw at that racetrack was as outrageous and galling as anything I've seen. And even the governor of North Carolina spoke up and, and said how awful it was that that, that happened. It isn't as awful uh, as the George Floyd situation and what followed it. I mean, it, it breaks my heart, uh, both the, the killing of George Floyd and the reaction, the, the fires, the looting. But I have to say, I, and I've heard this from experts, I don't think that most of the damage is being done by the people who are genuinely protesting the killing of George Floyd. Uh, this, these are outsiders coming in. These are domestic terrorists whose point is to take advantage of this situation and cause chaos. As a small example of that, everyone arrested in St. Paul, Minnesota overnight last week was not from the state of Minnesota. They flew in to participate or were flown in to participate in this. So we have a lot of uh, bad far left and far right wing groups taking advantage of this situation to try to cause a racial war in America. And we can't have that happen. These are scary times. We talk about that with, with Luther Campbell a little bit coming up. Now you mentioned that that was the meat of the episode. So would, would what we just did the last five to eight minutes be the appetizer, like the salad, the soup? Like what's, <laughs> if Luther's the entree, what did we just do? Well, they, you know, we're always a five course meal here at the Greg Cody show, uh, including a nice bottle of uh, Cabernet toward the end, maybe an after-dinner drink, uh, a cognac, perhaps. Uh, so, yeah, the, but, but the meat is coming up, I guarantee you that. Before we get to that, can we, can we have another like little uh, order of maybe some potato skins here that I have in the <laughs> oven? Let me bring it out. Sure, um, that sounds great. Melvin Gordon, who, just, who recently joined the Denver Broncos, had some funny comments about Chargers fans. He says, Chargers home games really prepared him for playing with no fans. Now, that's a cheap shot, and it's funny. <laughs> But I'm kind of done with players. I feel like as a South Florida fan and as a fan of teams that get criticized for having bad fans, 
I'm kind of over the cheap shot at fans by players when they leave. Okay, so so you object also then when uh, when I make the same joke about the Marlins returning to an empty Marlins park? Yeah, it's just easy. It's a low-hanging fruit. It's it not, is. It's not it actually is. funny. It's just like, okay. what, okay, there's that's a bad fan base. Good joke. It's, like, it's yeah, sort of mean. It's mean, right, yeah. to be honest with you. And the part about it is the only people that get offended by – Melvin Gordon's comments are the fans that go to the games. Right. The people that aren't Chargers fans and don't go to Chargers games don't get offended by that comment because they don't care anyways. Right. It's only offending the actual people that spent money to go watch him play. You're taking yeah. a shot at the only people that did actually support you. All right. Here we go to the meat. Potatoes on the side. I'm thrilled to have Luther Campbell uh, on the show because I've admired him for a while. He's a, he's a Miami legend. You know, he from Two Live Crew back in the day, and he founded the Liberty City Optimist football program. And a lot of the players that, that star in high school down here got their start because of what Luther Campbell put together in South Florida. So this is a, this is a great guy, a real representative of the 305. Aside from the seriousness of what Luther Campbell says, the interview starts with Greg Cody making a classic Greg Cody air where Luther Campbell pulls up on Zoom and he clearly has a digital background of the Orange Bowl behind him. And Greg Cody thinks that Luther Campbell is sitting at a stadium. So it's a funny, it's a little funny nugget at the very beginning of the interview. This is an interview everybody is going to want to hear. And I think white people especially need to hear it. Hey, Luther Campbell. Hey, how you doing? That can't be a real field in the background. <laughs> Are you in a stadium, an empty stadium, or is that just a, a fun background? That's uh, the Orange Bowl. Come on, yeah, man. I recognize it. <laughs> yeah, old Lang Syne. Um, let's get to the heart of it uh, and, and why um, I'm so pleased to welcome you into the podcast because, Luther, I want to get out front with something that's obvious. You know, as, as a white guy in America, I've grown up with the unearned privilege of not having to feel racism or prejudice directed at me. You know, I, I don't know what it's like to have suspicious eyes on me when I walk into a 7-Eleven or, or worry that a cop who pulled me over for speeding might have his hand on his holster, you know, as he's approaching my car. I can feel angry about what happened in Minneapolis and that it's happening again, you know, and I can feel empathy for the victim's family and, and feel shame that my country still has racism in it. I've, I've written many times in support of Colin Kaepernick and all that, but I can't feel this the way that you do. So I wonder when, when you first heard about George Floyd and saw that video, um, your emotion was what? My, my emotions were, it was, it was devastating, uh, to be honest with you. Last week was the 40th anniversary of Arthur McDuffie uh, getting shot off of a motorcycle. And I was a kid at that point living in Liberty City, and I remember the tanks riding down the street, the tear grass and the smoke. And then as I grew older, then it became you know, uh, another person, whether it was Neville Johnson, whether it was, whether it was Trayvon Martin, whether it was, it, it just constantly kept going on and on and on. Then it came to a point of time where it kind of died down. Seemed like we, as a country, had it under control. And now when you go back to the last five years, it seems like we have gotten back to what we, what we got away from. You know, a black family in a church getting shot, murdered, I mean, you know, uh, take the guy to McDonald's. It just, it just so many things is one after another, 
you know, and so it it, it becomes, you know, a, a, as a black man who, who's in the community every day, you know, who's looking at these other black kids or these other families and saying, what world are we going to leave you? You know, it, it, it becomes, it, it's very, very disturbing and very sickening. But the, the, out of the bad, of all the bad, I've never seen this many white people come to the aid of African-Americans. I mean, I was talking, it was a, you know, I don't want to call the guy a name, he was the president of one of the most powerful organizations here in South Florida, just sent me a long text in, in last night, and he was very, very emotional about it, you know, and, it, and it, 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 it's, it, it's become just that serious, and we need to, we need to talk about it. We need to first say that, you know, we need to first say we have a problem. You know, no different than an alcoholic. The alcoholic goes into the room and, you know, and say, admit that he's an alcoholic and now the healing begins. But until we admit that there's racism in this country, then we're never going to heal. It's interesting what you said because uh, a fellow Miami icon of yours, Dwayne Wade, tweeted something interesting. I thought, D. Wade, uh, I'm not having it in front of me to read verbatim, but it was something to the fact that we're always going to have a problem uh, until the people unaffected by this are as angry as the people affected. How I read that was, man, white people got to be as disgusted by this as, as black people are. Otherwise, the problem worsens. No, no, no question about it. I mean, because, I mean, let's just take Dade County where we live at right now. In order for you to be, in, in order for a black person to become a judge in Dade County to be able to have a fair and impartial hearing, he has to win a county-wide race. You can't be a judge in Miami-Dade County and not win a county-wide race. So the likelihood of an African-American judge becoming a judge to be able to uh, oversee a case similar to this is, is, is slim to none. We have to start in Tallahassee. We have to start, I mean, in our own backyard, Tallahassee, change, change the laws, make it difficult for a officer to shoot an innocent uh, black person, white person, or any, any type of person. I mean, if we don't do anything about it and we just keep continue talking, then, you know, it's, it's gonna be, we'll be here for another 20 years talking about the same thing 20 more years from now and hope to God that the entire country don't burn down. But D-Wade was, he was correct. He was right on point. It needs to be more, you know, people, other than African-Americans talking about this issue. Why do you think it got worse five years ago? Any theories on that? Let me tell you, I, I think it's a combination of an African-American man becoming the president of the United States. I think it started when Obama became president, when, you know, uh, when this uprising of white nationalists started happening. Oh, they're trying to take over the country. They're trying to take the country. And it became this whole slogan of, of take back the country, make America great again, and all the, it, it started, unfortunately, it started when Obama, because me as a black man, I go to a, a restaurant or a store, or uh, uh, we hear stories within our community when we're in the barbershop where where people think, oh, you, you guys think y'all all that because, you know, you got a black president. Well, we wasn't feeling that way. You know, African-Americans wasn't feeling that way, but other people, you know, racist people were feeling that way. So then now you fast forward uh, eight years after that and you, you, you get the Tea Party. 
You know, you get Marco Rubio and the Senator out of Texas and they formed the Tea Party and now they're spitting on people of color, the leaders of people of color in Congress. And then you, you get a Donald Trump that takes the Tea Party and, and put that on steroids. And now he's, you know, he then, he then awakens a set of people, this, this white nationalist group, and he feeds into them. So then now you, that's the after effects of it all. I think before Obama, which, you know, I'm happy that he became president, first African-American president, but at the same time, the uprising of that came as a result of him being becoming the president. And now you have what you have right now today. That's interesting because I remember when Obama was elected and looking back, I think I was naive. I thought a, a black man being president would be good for the country, that, that it would help heal race tensions, not inflame them. But um, I, I think everything you say is, is accurate. And I just wonder what the solution is. Where is the hope here? You know, when it comes to cops, uh, bad cops, it just seems like police departments need to vet and hire more carefully in terms of hiring the right psychology of the police they hire. And, and I also think that they need to be quicker about firing bad cops. The guy who just caused um, the, the death we're talking about, he had had like 20 prior complaints against him. I mean, why was he still on the job? I think that's where it needs to start. Uh, it needs to start where the state legislators need to make it, make it more easier for a cop. The cop police officers should be held to the same standards as any other citizen. Well, in the state of Florida, it is more difficult to fire a police officer. It's more difficult to convict a police officer. I sat on many panels with the ACLU and, and, and Police Belevenar Association and, it's, and, and learned a lot about how difficult it is because of the state laws to fire a police officer. And this happens in every other state and city and municipality around the country. They basically, when you become a police officer, you, you basically have the right to kill with no repercussions. And you can get your job back. Look at the kids in, in, in Broward County. They're at the store like we all were when we were little kids. And there was a little fight that happened between two kids. And then the police officer comes in, slams the black kid down the ground, beats him up. And then now he gets fired. And then he has to be reinstated and given his job back. What does that say about us as, as a community and as a state? So legislators have to, be, have to change these laws where, where police officers are held to the same standards as any other citizen in, in this country. For perspective, um, I, I think you and I would both agree that, you know, cops are necessary. They're, they're an essential part of a civil society. And, and, that, and that, you know, I have friends who are cops and, and I have no doubt that the vast majority maybe 95% are, are good people, good cops, and they don't do this kind of stuff. But the problem is, you know, cops are like uh, commercial airline pilots and surgeons. One bad one's too many because it can kill you, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I think the point is nobody is, is slamming police in general. We're just talking about the bad ones who, who are out there and, and they need to be gotten rid of, you know? It's just um, because you see what happens. George Floyd dies and, and we see unrest all around the country. And in, you know, all of a sudden in the middle of a pandemic and a crashing economy, the country has to be on edge because of this. It's just, it's too much. It is too much. And just like you say, in any workplace, there are good people and there are bad people. I mean, I have my brother-in-law 
is a police officer. Uh, my cousin is a police officer. I have another police officer friend that I was the best man in his wedding. You know, I grew up with him. I encouraged him to be a police officer. Now he's a, a lieutenant and another one is a sergeant. You know, I mean, so we 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 know we have there are good police officers. We know that they're they're great police. And we sit down and we have these conversations about these things when they happen. And and they say the same thing. You know, look, that that that's wrong. That that makes no no yes. sense. I, I wanna veer off to a, a lighter topic. Uh just with maybe the optimism that, you know, just like we know that the vast majority of police are not the people who caused George Floyd to die, and the vast majority of people in this country, uh, including white people, are not racists and right. are disgusted by what happened. So um, let's let's move on, because I'm going to let you go soon, but I'm, I'm real curious, Luther. I know um, Levitard is a friend of both of ours. Um, what happened? Uh, why weren't you at his wedding? I have to ask you that. <laughs> oh, I had actually, I had a concert. I had a concert in Boca the same night. Oh, really? Yeah, it was actually a concert that had got postponed, and then they moved it, the concert to the same night. So I was trying to figure out a way, should I be able to take a helicopter? And I, I, was, I, I thought of everything possible to get to the wedding, but I couldn't get to the wedding in that. And that kind of bothered me because Dan came to my wedding and I've been pushing Dan to get married for so many years uh, with, all, with all those different girlfriends that he had. But I'm, right. I'm glad he picked the right one. And then I miss, I, you know, I miss hugging his mom. That's right. my girl. I personally think it was very inconsiderate of Dan not to reschedule his wedding so you could be there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's, that's my, that's my uh, soul brother. That's my soul uh, brother from another month. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's a good man. Hey, uh, I want to leave you with this, Luther. I know you're a follow the Miami Hurricanes football program real closely. You know most of the coaches in Miami-Dade County. And, and I wonder, is, is Manny Diaz doing – is UM doing enough to, to keep all the talent we have down here in South Florida? How's Manny Diaz doing? What do you think is the overall state of the U right now? I did a group Zoom – last week facebook live thing for my podcast and everybody said basically the same thing you know they they actually asked me but everybody said the state of the youth the competitiveness of the players and the toughness of the practice is what they saw was missing when they go down there but for me as being a high school football coach for the last 17 years in miami dealing with college scouts on a regular basis, even right now, because this is uh, the period of recruiting. When you look at Miami, and I've had these conversations a lot with Manny, just like I have with any other coach, I tell him you have to recruit Miami better. You have to get coaches at the school working for you that have a relationship with the coaches in Miami. And when I, you know, I, I, I sat back and and say, let me, you know, before I run my mouth, let me go do some research on what we have on the roster. So I went and I looked on the roster, and I noticed that from Flagler Street to County Line, which you know, uh, the area that's, your, that's Miami Central, Miami Northwestern, Miami Jackson, Miami High, Carroll City, Edison, Northwestern, that's the hotbed of Miami. And when I looked at the roster and only saw three kids from those schools, 
that says a lot about the recruiting tactics and that says a lot about the program. Why is it only three kids from from the most the, the cream of the crop, the top schools in the country as far as uh, uh, talent is concerned? And so, I, you know, I had a conversation. I'm like, look, you know, I recommended him some coaches to put on staff that I know can recruit the area um, better, that has a great relationship with all those coaches. You know, he chose to go a different direction at the beginning. And then and this next year, he chose to continue keeping the same staff and keeping the same group of guys. I mean, I was talking to uh, Ed Arjun. He came by my school. He's recruiting a couple of players at our school. And me and him just sat down. We just talked for like, for like an hour, you know, uh, before the pandemic hit, when the head coaches were able to come out. We talked about Cortez Kennedy. We talked about old University of Miami when he used to coach there. And one thing he said, he said, I'm doing the same thing we did at Miami at, at LSU. You know, when I talked to Nick Saban and, and he's trying to recruit some of our kids, he said the same thing. I'm just using the blueprint of University of Miami in Alabama. And I just come to Miami and South Florida, take the top uh, kids to come there. And that's all I need is a few from uh, Miami or Berkeley County. And I'm going to be all right. Luther, um, I really appreciate catching up with you and, and thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing some thoughts with us. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, and you're still looking young, man. You're still, you're still, you're still looking young. I, I look at the show and I see you on there and your son is on there and they try to give you a hard time, but, but you hold your own. I appreciate that and thank you for lying about me looking young. <laughs> hey, take it easy. Stay safe. All right, All right we'll see you. Keep in touch. Okay, thank you, Luther Campbell. Uh, really good stuff on uh, the George Floyd situation and interesting stuff on UM football. If uh, Hey, Manny Diaz, if, if, if you weren't listening to that, um, uh, somebody tell him to, um, to listen to this because uh, Luke knows what he's talking about. Do you think anybody that just heard what you said is going to tell Manny to listen to this podcast? Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, we've had Blake James, the athletic director, on in the past. I know he, he's a podcast listener to, of ours, so uh, maybe Manny is too. Love you, Manny. Now, should you probably set up this Ron McGill duck thing a little bit for the people that haven't heard the radio show? Maybe you should explain that. Greg Cody is the, has become that guy in his neighborhood. Him and his wife and my brother, to some extent, they've become the family that is feeding ducks in their neighborhood. And it's made me feel a little awkward because I, I feel like, you know, they're setting these ducks up for failure. I just ah. I was just skeptical of this. So I brought it up to Ron McGill on our Tuesday segment. And he agreed with me saying that he shouldn't feed ducks. So we bring Ron McGill on so they can have duck debate 2020. Will Greg Cody work in a duck you find out on the Greg Cody show with Ron McGill coming up right now. Hey, Ron, how you doing? Doing well. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. First of all, I, I really appreciate you doing this at this particular time because it's obviously busy at Zoo Miami. You're sort of reopening to to members, right? And we've this got week. the members coming in. You know, it's 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 not been you know we've probably got anywhere between 800 to 1,000 people coming in here, uh, which is great. It's kind of easy to manage. The park is so large, we're able to keep that social distancing and stuff. It's probably going to be a little bit more tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday, and then Monday we open to the general public. This has just been for members. 
So right. one general public, and that's going to be bigger. And and what um just briefly, what what kind of pandemic related changes will people notice when they visit for the first time? Well, they're going to notice first of all that you come in, you've got to wear a mask to come in. Any kids two and up have to wear a mask. But I want to clarify that you just need to wear the mask to get in. And that's because of the executive order from the mayor's office saying in any institution like Zoom Army, you have to wear a mask to come in. Once you're in the park and you can socially distance, you can take the mask off. Because I can tell, you know, I, I, I know myself, I'm thinking, if I got to wear a mask in this park in the heat in the summer, oh it's my just God. not going to be an enjoyable experience. So having said that, we're going to wear the mask. Um, you know, bring a water bottle with you. Uh, we have the, the water bottle filler-uppers throughout the park, but they're going to disable the water fountains to try to minimize the common touch points. Um, right. so, you know, the playgrounds, the water play areas, they're going to be closed. The animal feedings are going to be closed because not only do we want to socially distance between people, we've got to socially distance with our animals too because, quite frankly, we don't know what animals can contract this disease. We know tigers can, we know lions can, we know domestic cats, domestic dogs, ferrets, but we don't know what cannot. So in order to protect our animals, as well as protecting our guests, our, our staff, we're socially distancing with the animals also. And, and how difficult was it to find masks big enough to fit some of the larger animals? Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to picture an elephant wearing a protective mask. It's, uh, hey, um, Ron, tell people a little bit about the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment and w what you guys do there and, and how people can support it. Well, I appreciate it, Greg. You know, I. I I'm here now 40 years at the zoo. I never thought I'd be any place in my life for 40 years. I probably didn't even think I'd live 40 years. But having said <laughs> that, uh, you know, I didn't come to work here to work for an attraction. My passion has always been about wildlife and wildlife in the wild. I always tell people if the zoo is the last place you can see an animal, the zoos have been an epic failure. The goal of the zoo should be to protect these animals in the wild and protect the wild habitat where these animals live. Um, you know, for too many years, Greg, whether it be budgets, politics, whatever. I just felt the zoo was not spending enough money and actually protecting the animals in the wild. We build these multi-million dollar exhibits and they weren't allocating any real significant funding to protect those animals in the wild. And I, and I was having issues with that. And it's not that they didn't want to, but it was always a budget cut issue. You know, we got to cut the budget. We can't cut the construction budgets. We're going to cut that budget. Anyway, to make a long story short, out of frustration, I said, I'm going to try to establish an endowment here at the zoo that was only for conservation. In other words, the money from that endowment can only be used to protect animals in the wild. Boots on the ground work in the wild. Uh, it was also a little bit out of, and I, and it's, it's, I feel badly saying it, but it's out of ego too, because after being here 40 years, I said to myself, well, what's my legacy? What's the mark I'm leaving here? Just working here 40 years and collecting a paycheck? And I didn't want that to happen. So I wanted to create an endowment. An endowment is basically where you raise a, a significant sum of money that you do not touch. That money's invested, and the dividends from those investments can then be used. Uh, and, you know, to make any kind of dent in an endowment, you have to raise at least a million dollars. And I thought I would never be able to do that. But really, thankfully to some great friends, thankfully to the Dan Levitard show and all of the great listeners on that show. We've raised more than that. Uh, this year alone, we were able to send out over $100,000. We bought new vehicles for research and conservation in the field from Africa to Panama. Uh, you know, bought radio collars for animals, helping these boot, provided the scholarships for people working directly in conservation. And you know, Greg, the great thing is that's forever. If I step away from here and I get run over by a truck, that goes on for the rest of time. That's why that endowment was set up that way. And that gives me a sense of peace and allows me to continue working here at the zoo with some sense of credibility. That's great. Um, if people want to support the endowment or contribute to it, how do they do that? Just go to zoomiami.org, and uh, you can go 
right to the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment. Just search in Ron McGill Conservation Endowment. Totally 100% tax deductible. It's a 501c3. It's a you know, four-star charity organization. And you can rest assured that, you know, you're not even really making a donation. You're making an investment because the money you donate goes into the endowment as a corpus. It does not get spent. It just increases the corpus so more dividends can be produced. Okay. We have to get to the, uh, the duck feeding controversy, which uh, <laughs> has come up uh, a time or two <laughs> recently on the Levitard show. I, I think the world, you are an absolute zoo uh, an animal and conservation expert. Anything you say about animals is is gospel to me. But I have to make an exception and, and veer away from you on the on the controversial duck feeding I'm doing. First of all, why is it bad for? Because I think of myself as as heroically sustaining the lives of this beautiful duck duck family, a mother and eight uh, eight little uh, uh, little ones that are now becoming juveniles. I think based on their size. Why is that a bad thing to do? Well, because what they're doing is, first of all, I don't know what you're feeding them. If you're feeding them bread, that's not good for any birds. Uh, people don't realize that. Birds love it, just like we love candy and we love cotton candy and soda and stuff like that. That stuff's not good for us. And bread is not good for birds. Uh, it'll fill them up. It's good. So they'll eat it uh, beyond belief and end up getting sick if they're eating too much of them. So that's number one, because a lot of people don't know exactly what to feed a bird. But more importantly is what you're doing is, here in Florida, there's no real need to be feeding birds supplementally like that. If you want to put up a bird feeder with seed, that's fine. Um, but you know that's really more effective up north when the winter comes and there's a, a scarcity of food. Here in Florida, we really, we really don't have a scarcity of food, especially for ducks. And when you have ducks like Muscovy ducks, especially that, that aren't even native here, they start depending on these people feeding them. They start producing more ducks. They start producing more feces and they become a bit of a problem. And more importantly, they become dependent on that. They start not using their natural instincts to gather their own food. And by doing that, you know, Greg, you're not going to be there forever. And as from generation to generation, and they start teaching their ducklings, hey, go to Cody's house. He's going to have bread. Next generation, hey, go to Cody's house. going to have bread. And next generation is like, oh, Cody's not here anymore. Now what do we do? Okay. I mean, I'm putting an oversimplistic form, but that's exactly what's happening. When, when people start feeding wild animals that way, there is a, a dependency that, that develops that starts to deteriorate their natural instinct to gather their own food. Should I like buy a nice piece of filet mignon and cut it into pieces? <laughs> what, what, what do I feed a duck for crying there, there, out loud? There is commercial duck chow that you can get in any feed store. Really? Okay. Yes. There's a, and that is well balanced for them, nutritious for them, and it's much better for them than bread. So if you want to be, continue to be Cody the duck feeder, please go and get good quality duck chow. Duck chow, who knew? Yeah, who even, knew there even, was duck even, chow? Even a poultry chow would be okay for that. Wow, okay. Uh, live and learn, right? Um, <laughs> I want to tell everybody who don't know, uh, you're an accomplished professional photographer. And if people want to see gorgeous uh, photos of animals from the zoo and elsewhere, uh, check out at uh, Ron McGill on Twitter and at Ron McGill Conservation on Instagram. Some of the photo art you do with animals is just breathtaking. I, I appreciate it, Greg. You know what? But really, for me, and I'm not saying this flippantly, it really isn't a talent. I'm just really lucky that I get to be in places to be with animals that really you'd have a hard time taking a bad image. It's much easier for me to take an image than it is for you to write a story. I look at you writing and I'm thinking, how does this guy write this stuff? Because if somebody put a gun to my head, I could never put the words together the way you do. So, you know, I, I want to clarify the difference between taking a good image, which is basically pointing, composing, and pressing, and writing an incredible story. 
everybody, I guess, has something they gravitate to. I love photography because it enables me to observe animals closer. I have infinite patience when it comes to watching animals. So that enables me to sometimes capture some good behaviors where I know a lot of people will go, they'll click the picture, say, I got it, let's go somewhere else. So we gotta wait, let's see what the animal does. You never know what's gonna happen, you know? And that helps out a lot. So uh, I've been very lucky that I get to go to places like Africa, the Amazon, Antarctica, all these places to see this stuff face on. And all I'm doing is pointing and clicking, but I really appreciate your compliment. <laughs> Now, uh, hello, Ron, by the way. I haven't said hello to you yet. How's it going? <laughs> now, I, you mentioned his photography. I got to see it firsthand when he caught a real rare species when he saw Dan Lebitard getting married. Ron at Dan's wedding was just on his game doing photography that day. Dan, have you ever caught a more rare animal than a Dan Lebitard getting married? Well, listen, as you and I both know, uh, Dan is, you know, such a publicly uh, loved host and everybody in the world seems to know him, but he's really a very private guy when it comes to his private life. He really is a private guy. And I, and I, I felt so unbelievably privileged to be, you know, invited to that wedding. And I know he had a professional photographer there, but I always have a camera with me no matter what. And I'm watching the professional photographer and I'm thinking, God, she's missing this. She's missing this. How come, she's not, how come she's not clicking here? What the hell's going on? Now, she was concentrating a lot on the video thing. To give her credit, she was concentrating on doing the video. So I said, I told Rita, I said, honey, I'm going to just start shooting away here. If, I, if you see that I'm pissing people off, please tell me. But I'm going to get some shot. And, you know, there's one shot I took of them that I really love. And actually, uh, he and Val fell in love with it, too. I know it's framed and it's nice in their house. It's just that moment. Right before he kissed her, he's got her hands on her cheeks and he's looking at her. He's got tears in his eyes. And, you know, to see Dan that way and to look at Val, so that picture to me was worth everything. And, yes, it is incredibly rare to photograph Dan Levitard, any kind of non-pose type of thing. It was, that was pure Dan. It was a moment of Dan that uh, I hope that they can treasure that picture for the rest of their lives. Okay. Hey, that wasn't enough McGill for me. Um, I think we're going to try to bring him back next week as well and dive into a bunch of stuff with him because he's a fascinating figure in a lot of ways. Uh, so thank you, Ron. Um, thanks, Luther Campbell. Really appreciate you dropping by the podcast. Now, I don't want people thinking that we forgot about them. We have selected winners from the contest that we did last week where people had to retweet the podcast and we will do a Zoom with them. We selected the winners yesterday on twitter if you're not sure if you won go check out at the greg cody show on twitter we announced the winners yesterday we will be zooming later in this week with them and we always appreciate when people partake in these little contests and retweet and try to help us get the the episode out yes podcast family we do really appreciate your support uh in every way and for joining us every week on the greg cody show you know these are weird times in america and um i want us to be safe i i want as you do, we all want justice in America. Uh, we want peace on the streets. Uh, and we want to come out of this a healed, better country. And on that way too serious note, thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.